Today we're invited to reflect upon the lives of two widows. These poor women are more than characters in the family of God. They are our mothers in the faith, our ancestors in the family of God. And while their lives were very, very poor in terms of material things, they stand out as people whose lives were immeasurably rich in the substance of trust. The first widow lived in the Gentile territory of Phoenicia during the time of King Ahab when he ruled the northern kingdom about the ninth century B.C. The second widow was a woman Jesus spotted one day when he was sitting near the treasury at the Jerusalem temple. There's an important similarity in these two women. Both of them trusted in God enough to give everything for God. We can learn about faith from them as we reflect on their lives. It was their faith above everything else that caused them to be remembered and their story to be repeated right down to our own generation. For example, unusual faith can be found in unlikely places. It is scandalous that the woman to whom Elijah turned for help was a Gentile woman. When a Gentile woman's faith is greater than that of God's own people, you know things are pretty bad. The contrast is sharpened by the fact that this poor widow lived in the place from which the evil Queen Jezebel had come. Who would think of going to such a place as this and finding such a person as this with such an unusual amount of faith in God? It's equally scandalous that the woman at the temple should be singled out by Jesus as an example of piety. She is such a contrast to the teachers of the law who wore their piety wherever they went. Who would think to look at such a shriveled up old woman and see the manifestation of the glory of God? For that matter, who would think to look at a carpenter's son from Nazareth to behold the Savior of the world? Who would expect to see the complete sacrifice of God on behalf of humanity carried out on the town garbage heap instead of the altar at the temple? Where do you look for faith? In the marketplace or in the wilderness? In your possessions or in your poverty? Well, the truth is, God is in all of those places. The key is to learn to recognize God. More often than not, it seems that those who have learned this skill usually learned it in the wilderness of their lives because it is there that they are completely emptied of the ego-inflating baubles and securities and excuses that block dependence on God alone. Those things make us think we're self-sufficient. There's not much that I admire about the life of Janis Joplin, except the fact that she also came from Texas. <laughs> but in a line from the song she sang about Bobby McGee, there's a great truth that gives clarity to the point I'm trying to make. She sang, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. And I would add, faith is just another word for nothing left to lose.
Jesus taught his disciples to look for examples of faith and signs of God's reign in places and in persons others are inclined to overlook. He also taught them to look into the dark places of their own lives in order to recognize their barrenness and need, which in the hands of God can become fertile soil for a great faith. When we reach the point at which we have nothing left to lose, faith is often the best chance. And in the stories of these two widows, we see the demonstration of one of the most important expressions of spiritual leadership, the correction of misperceptions of reality. One of the most dangerous expressions to emerge from the collective folk wisdom of our age is the declaration, as if it's one of the commandments of God, that perception is reality. Now, on one level, it's true, and I recognize that. However, the expression is most often applied not to the right perception, but to misperception, and it leads to a failure of leadership. It's the responsibility of leaders to correct misperception and not to allow it to be treated as reality. Perception, you see, is a process, the process of perceiving. To perceive is to become aware of some reality directly through any of the senses, especially sight or hearing. To perceive is to achieve understanding of reality. When the process of perception leads to misunderstanding of reality, for a leader to let it stand or allow it to guide decisions is simply a failure of leadership. Neither Elijah nor Jesus failed in today's text. The Phoenician woman, for instance, faced life with the perception of scarcity. Elijah asked her to trust in God's abundance, and she did, and her trust, her faith, was rewarded with a new and more glorious reality. Through the process of right perception, a new way of looking at things, her anxiety gave way to certainty. Jesus didn't want his disciples to perceive that the teachers of the law were people's, people of integrity. They appeared to be generous, but they weren't. Exercising wise spiritual leadership, Jesus called attention to the poor widow whose offering appeared small in contrast to the offerings of the Pharisees. Just as the disciples may have incorrectly perceived that the teachers of the law were good examples of faith and generosity, so they may have incorrectly perceived that the poor widow was not, that she didn't really matter, that she wasn't an example of anything high and lofty. But Jesus pointed out to them something that they may have overlooked, and that detail changed everything. He pointed out that the poor widow's offering was not simply a percentage of what she had. It was everything she had. She held back nothing. Her faith and her generosity was actually the most influential of all of those who were gathered around the temple treasury that day. Perception really is everything, but leaders have to take care not to cater to misperception. Leaders have a responsibility to correct them, and leaders have a duty to uphold right perceptions by acting on them. 
And then joy and sacrifice are two sides of the same coin. Neither of these two ladies described her offering as a sacrifice. I have in mind a particular widow I once knew who inspired me. By many standards, she, she was um, very poor, and she had an enormous burden to bear. But that perception of mine was not reality. She never referred to her life in terms of sacrifice. Her burden was her joy. What I described as a sacrifice, she described as a joy. And that's the way it always is with people of remarkable faith. If I lavish my love on you, you may call it a sacrifice if you wish, but I may not. In order for the word sacrifice to remain healthy, it has to be confined to the comments of those who interpret the act of giving by another. On the lips of the one who's doing the giving, the word sacrifice smacks of self-righteousness. My widow friend uh, once told me of a response given to her by a man who did her a great kindness. She thanked him profusely, and he said to her, Never forget what others do for you, and and never remember what you do for others. Never forget what others do for you, and never remember what you do for others. Joy and sacrifice are two sides of the same coin. Each of us needs to learn which side of the coin to look at when we drop it into the offering plate. And there's another way of saying it all. The more one gives, the greater one's capacity to receive. The poor widows, like the blind beggar Bartimaeus and the little child Jesus used as an example of trust, present the image of emptiness before God. In God's version of reality, to be empty is to have capacity, capacity to be filled. But that means receiving, not giving or doing. And the kingdom of God is received. Sort of like when we go to the altar, we don't take communion. We receive it into hands that are open and receptive, representing hearts and lives that are open and receptive to be fed by God Having been rid of everything, having stood empty and childlike and naked and poor without claim before God, one is able to receive everything, even one's own life, as a gift. Wealth in God's realm of reality is measured in these terms. And that's why Jesus exhorts us to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Everything else we need will be added So with empty and receptive lives, we come here today to God's table. God wants to fill us up with love divine. God wants us to be fully who we are. God tells us now, as in the beginning of time, how much God trusts us and longs for us to trust in return, to depend upon God alone. It's a tall order. I get that. But this food which God gives us, is supposed to nourish us and give us the grace to get up and keep trying to empty ourselves and trust God. The miracle God worked with the flour and the oil of the Phoenician widow is nothing compared to the miracle God works with your life and mine when our capacity to give is first the capacity to receive that which God offers. 
Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.